You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do praise you for your many uncountable blessings that you've poured out on us. We thank you supremely for revealing yourself and your grace to us in the person of Jesus. And we thank you that the whole scriptures bear witness to him. So would you now illumine our hearts and minds, empower me and all of us by your spirit, that we might not just be those who read and walk away, but that we would respond to the word of God with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. So good to see you on this warm November day, and we are nearing, believe it or not, nearing the end of the Christian year. Christians tell time a little differently, and so we begin our year on the first Sunday of Advent, which is just three Sundays from today, which is a little crazy. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to end our, our year with a little three-week uh, mini-sermon series that we're calling The Way of Tov, and Tov means good in Hebrew, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, But we're going to wrap up our year with just a little three-week series on the book of Micah, Um, specifically the most famous verse in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and you'll probably be familiar with that. And so to read from Micah 6, verses 1 through 8, we're going to hear from Caleb and Berkeley as they read to us. So let's hear God's word. A reading from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people... Remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have a basement in our house. It's an unfinished basement. It's actually a pretty pleasant place. And normally it smells pretty good. It smells like laundry detergent and sawdust and a little bit of faint smell of glue and art supplies. Um, But a a couple months ago, it started to smell pretty funny and even a little rotten. And so I went down with a flashlight and I took my, our little dog Maeve with us, who's a corgi and has a very, very strong snout. And after we searched and searched and searched, we found, get this kids, we found a big, fat, dead rat. It was was super gross. 
uh, and smelled bad. Nobody wants a stinky rat. <laughs> Nobody wants that smell coming up from their basement. The last few years, uh, in the American church, there has been something just a little bit smelly. Now, it needs to be said that in a secular culture like ours, there will always be ways that the church will be and should be, frankly, offensive to those outside of it. And we should be willing to accept that offense as part of what it means to bear witness to a crucified king. But we want to cause offense for the right things, right? We want to cause offense because of the gospel, right? We don't want to cause offense for regrettable things that mar our witness, And unfortunately, there have been a lot of those regrettable things in recent years. As our culture has devolved into deeper and deeper political and cultural division and polarization, the American church has tended to get sucked right into it and to mirror along the same binary political lines in in cultural battle zones. On top of that, headlines about the American church have been full of corruption and cover-ups, celebrity worship and unaccountable leaders false and shallow teaching, and even misogyny and abuse. Again and again, we've seen Christian culture shaped less by love and sacrifice and more by greed, vanity, fear, and anger. Many of our friends, friends that I know, neighbors and maybe friends of yours, have lost confidence in the church as an institution. Many have deconstructed their faith or even lost their faith altogether. And unfortunately, when many catch the fragrance of the church, it is not pleasant fragrant or good, it smells like something stinks. Well, about 3,000 years ago, God's people found themselves in a similar situation, and God called the prophet Micah to speak a word of correction. As you heard Caleb and Berkeley read in the text, God reminds his people, look, I redeemed you. I saved you. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I did this for a purpose that you would be my holy people, a kingdom of priests to the nations, that you would communicate my goodness, that when people look at you, they can taste, they can see, they can smell my goodness to the nations. And instead, he condemns God's people for falling into idolatry and injustice and wickedness, mirroring the world, rather than being a light and a witness to it. And so in the pinnacle of this prophecy, God says this. It's a famous verse. You you may know it well. It says, he has told you, he's speaking to all of Israel here, he has told you, O mortal, what is Tov, good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Tov. Tov is a, let's say that word together. It's a very simple Hebrew word. Tov. It's, a, it's just a word that means good, beautiful, pleasant. The most famous use of tov, I bet you could guess. Um, I don't know if you kids remember Genesis 1 when God creates the world but he says something after everything that he makes. You know, he makes the mountains and he says, it is tov. And he makes the seas and he says, it is tov. And he makes the orangutans and he says, it's tov. And he makes the zebras and the beetles and he says, it's tov. And at the pinnacle of all creation, he makes humanity and he says, it is very tov. God pronounces a sevenfold benediction of tov over his creation. And here in the book of Micah, he says, I wanna be able to say that about my people that I would look upon my people, look upon my church, look upon the people that represent me in the world and say, it is tov, good, that my people are reflecting 
God's goodness and beauty and glory to the world. How can that happen? How can the church recover that? Well, God says it. There's a lot of ways to talk about how we can live in a confusing and crazy time like the one that we're living in, but this text is one of the most simple and clear ways to say it, that God wants us to be people of justice, people who love mercy, and people who walk in humility before him. So we're going to spend the last three weeks of the Christian year focusing on each of those things. What does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to love mercy? And what does it mean to walk humbly with our God? So our focus today is on do justice. Do justice. What does that mean? It's really important that when we talk about justice as Christians, we're not just importing our own secular ideas into the meaning of that word, but that we're really looking hard at what the Bible means when it uses that word. You know, so many people throw around the word justice these days. Um, There's a lot of contention in our society about what the word justice means. It reminds me of um, The Princess Bride, where Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Do you remember that, friends? Um, Because I think a a lot of people are using that word, justice, but I think that there's a lack of realization that that word actually means many, many different things. In a wonderful book written by a Harvard professor, Michael Sandel, that's called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? Sandel argues that the reason there is so little consensus in our society about how our society should be governed is because so many people are working with rival conceptions of justice. Um, So on the one hand, you have notions of justice that are more individualistic, like the libertarian view that sees justice as rights to personal freedom, or the more liberal enlightenment view that sees justice as fairness, in which everyone should have equal rights and opportunities. On the other hand, you have a more collectivist view. You've got sort of like the Rawlsian, like um, utilitarian view that sees justice as maximizing happiness for the greatest good, sometimes even at the expense of the individual. And then you have more distributist views that see justice as redistributing assets for greater equality. So you could see that like four people could be in a room arguing about justice but all be talking about very, very different things. It's no wonder so little progress is made in our society, right? But here's, here's why I bring this up with you all, family. None of these encompass the biblical view. Biblical justice is more robust, more nuanced, and more comprehensive than any secular notions of justice. And we need to remember that as Christians, our view on justice must ultimately be formed not by a Republican or Democratic platform, not by Fox or CNN, not by our favorite op-ed writer, but our view on justice must be formed by Scripture and Scripture alone. Are you with me on that? Can I get an amen to that? All right. So what does Scripture say about justice? Well, in this text, Micah 6, 8, um, a a word is used, do justice, and that word is mishpat. Mishpat. Let's say that Hebrew word together. Mishpat. We're learning lots of Hebrew today, right? Mishpat. And mishpat is a word that's used hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, and there is just not really a parallel English word because it is such a a beautiful, complex word, and it has at least three distinct components to it. The first component is equal treatment for all. This is the most basic understanding of mishpat. You could call this retributive justice, um, paying the consequences for what you did. And the Old Testament actually has a very strong sense of personal responsibility that you hold individuals accountable for their individual actions. But there's also a very strong emphasis in the Old Testament on fair and equal rendering of justice for each person, whether rich or poor, whether foreign-born or native-born. 
So for example, Leviticus 24, you are to have the same mishpat for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Now this is mishpat on the most basic level, right? Don't treat anyone, even someone of another race, someone you don't like, someone of another ethnicity, even another religion. Do not treat them differently than you would treat your own kin. Now, to us 21st century Americans who live in a democracy, this sounds like, duh, right? Obvious. But I need y'all to know that like in the ancient world, this was crazy. This was unheard of, right? I mean, every ancient society operated on a caste system where certain people just by simply nature of their birth or their class or their caste had more rights than other rights. So this concept of the equal fair treatment of all was revolutionary. And our whole notion of rights in the modern Western democracy is grounded in this biblical vision of equality under the law. That's mishpat, fair treatment for all. Okay, that's the first component. The second component of mishpat is special treatment for those without power. So again and again, if you know your Bibles and if you read them a lot, you'll see that God is introduced again and again as a God who stands on the side of those who are powerless. Specifically, as we see in Deuteronomy 10:18, God executes mishpat for the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner giving him food and clothing. We often talk about the quartet of the vulnerable, right? The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Because God is a God who has serious concern for the powerless, he also commands this of his people. So Proverbs 31 is interesting. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Notice it does not say speak up for the rich or defend the rights of the powerful. Why? Because the Bible acknowledges that these folks are in positions where they are able to speak up for themselves, right? So in con this is really interesting because in contrast to principle one, which calls us to treat everyone the same, this aspect of mishpat says don't treat everyone the same. Because in our broken world, not everyone is given the same lot and the same advantages and God over and over again identifies with those who are at the bottom, who are at the bottom of society, those without a voice, those without power. He says to his people again and again, have special concern and advocate with a special voice for them. Don't treat the same because I am with them. And again, this was revolutionary at the time. Vinath Ramachandra, who's a Sri Lankan theologian um, and biblical scholar, notes that in the ancient world, and again, nearly all societies, the gods aligned and identified with the most powerful in society, right? The kings, the generals, the captains. So if you came against the kings, you would come against the gods because the gods identified with the powerful. In Israel, oh my goodness, it's the reverse. That God identifies not with the powerful, but the powerless. God says in Exodus, you come against the weak and the powerless? watch out, you come after me, I'm gonna come after you. You don't wanna do that with this God, right? So that's, we see first, mishpat is equal treatment of all. Second, mishpat is special treatment of the powerless. And third aspect of mishpat is radical generosity. Now, we don't normally think of generosity as an aspect of justice, but in the Bible, they're hand in hand. So here's an example from the book of Ezekiel. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is mishpat, he does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry. 
and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. Now, look, look at that text. This is so interesting because in describing a just person, the text pairs, he does not commit robbery with the explanatory cause, clause that he actively gives his assets to the poor. Now, the implication is, of course, if you are not actively and generously sharing your resources with the poor, you're not just stingy, you're a robber. You're actually not, you're committing injustice. Job says the same thing in Job 31. He says, if I had not shared my food and money with the destitute, I would be deserving of God's wrath. I mean, gosh, this is so different than we normally think about charity. Even as Christians, right? We think, okay, this money is mine. I don't owe it to anyone. But because of Jesus and out of the generosity of my heart, I'll choose to share it. But that's actually not biblical because God says, actually, it's not yours and you do owe it because it's mine. And this is what we say every week in the offering. We say, we give to you only out of what you have given to us, right? Not just what you have, but even the ability to make what you have. The fact that you were born today and not I don't know, in the mountains of Tibet in the 13th century, you know, no matter how hard you work then, you're not going anywhere, <laughs> right? But all of this, God gave it to you that it might be shared, especially for those who are in the greatest need of it. And so the Bible dares to say that if you are not radically generous with all that God has given you, you are not just stingy, you are a robber because you are hoarding for yourself what isn't yours. So what we're seeing here, right, is this biblical vision of justice, mishpat, that goes far beyond what we typically understand justice to be and really does not fit into any of our modern categories of right and left, conservative and liberal. This is why a follower, and let me just say that, okay, it's election week, right? Lots to talk about the election. This is why a follower of Jesus can never be at home in any modern political party or any secular political or social worldview because our vision of the kingdom of God that the Bible gives us breaks every modern category and upends secular notions of justice. So we don't fit the Bible into our politics and our visions. We let our vision of justice and the vision of the kingdom be fitted into the Bible. Clear? Right. So let's hear Micah again. He says, he's shown you, O mortal, what is tov, what is good. And what does the Lord require you? To do mishpat, to be this kind of person in the world, one shaped by God's heart for justice. So what does this mean? Let me close by giving some applications. First, about our life out there in the world, you know, Monday to Friday life that you guys live. And then second, applications for our life in here as a church community. So first, our life out there in the world. Just a few quick things. First, I've already spoken about this, but I would challenge you to think about whether or not you are a generous person, whether you're a generous person or not, right? The just person never sees their wealth as their own, but always as something God has given to steward for the sake of others. Do you see your money that way? Do you see it as like sort of your own to decide what you want to do with? Or do you see it as belonging to God and in the secondary sense, belonging <laughs> to the whole community? That's a pretty crazy way to think about it. But do you see, I mean, do you see the poor and the vulnerable as having a claim on you and your goods? Because God has commanded it, given to you to steward for their good. And there's no qualification about this, y'all. God doesn't say you should be generous just when you have a big surplus and when your kids have moved out and when you've paid off your car payment, right? No, there's no qualification about this. 
a person who is not living a radically generous life is committing injustice. So think about that. Ask a friend to look with you at your giving and evaluate your level of generosity. Second, integrity. The just person looks at the whole of their life, not just the spiritual parts of their life, to ensure that you're not harming but promoting good to our neighbors and community. There's a lot of y'all in business. There's a lot of entrepreneurs in the room, a lot of lawyers, a lot of people in development, real estate. I just want to say to you, just straight up, your bottom line, if you're a follower of Jesus, your bottom line is never just profit. That violates mishpat. Your, your bottom line is mishpat. Your, your bottom line is, is, a, is the kingdom, a just vision that God has given. And so are you doing your work in a way that seeks justice and righteousness? Or are you trying to squeeze every penny of profit out of your business by charging the highest possible fees and prices and paying the lowest possible wage? That's injustice. Are you privileging people only within your social class and culture for hiring, for recommendations? Or are you looking to include and empower people who are excluded? See, a just person is always seeking to disadvantage themselves for their community, thinking through every area of their lives, especially their work, their labor, and economics. A person of mishpat is a person of integration, wholeness, integrity. Finally, advocacy. Like God, the just person is constantly oriented towards the powerless. And in our time, that could be the poor, uh, the immigrant, the refugee, the unborn, the elderly, the racial or cultural minority, the refugee. The just person recognizes that the playing field in our society is not at all level because of the curse of human sin. And, and, and that there are indeed social structures in our society that disadvantage many people and that keep people powerless. And so the just person recognizes that they want to give more of their own cultural, financial, and social power to those with less, to speak up for those, to share their power with those who lack it. And I would really encourage you to come to our local missions conference next week to, to, to see how we as Christians can be people of Mishpat in our own city of Richmond. So those are some ideas for life out there in the world, generosity, integrity, advocacy. What about life in here, in our church community? What does it mean for us to do Mishpat with each other? Well, it's striking that many of the commands to do mishpat in the Bible are given not, to stra- not for strangers, but for the, for the church community, right? Think of the book of James, where James commands you to not show favoritism to the people who are rich and powerful in the world, but to treat everyone in the church with dignity and equal honor and worth. That's mishpat, you know, ordering our community in a just way. This is a really excellent book that you can see we were influenced by in this series. It's by Scott McKnight. It's called A Church Called Tove. And in this book, Scott McKnight points out that many of the recent church scandals, like the ones at Mars Hill or Willow Creek, resulted from loyalty, loyalty to the institution or to a leader or a pastor at the cost of justice for the abused person. Rachel Den Hollander, who was one of the first gymnasts in the U.S. women's uh, Olympic team to accuse the respected team physician Larry Nasser of abuse, writes heartbreakingly in her memoir that the church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse. Churches can be more concerned about their reputation. Um, they can have really unhealthy understandings of authority. Uh, they can be concerned more about loyalty and fidelity to a charismatic leader than they are to listening to, believing, 
and acting on behalf of vulnerable people who have been hurt. So I just want you to know, dear family that I love, that we are committed at Third to being a community of mishpat, of never, it doesn't mean we're always going to get right, but we're committed to being a community of mishpat, of never letting loyalty to Third as an institution or to me as a senior pastor or to Ed or anybody else, never get, let that get in the way of the vulnerable, the hurt, or the voiceless person being heard. And we've arranged our life accordingly. So our governance is arranged so that I have lots and lots of accountability. I actually don't have a lot of power. So if you, stop, you can stop asking me to change stuff because I can't. Um, our power, my power is shared power. Um, our children, we seek to protect them by, you know, taking great measures to put our volunteers and leaders through the necessary background checks. We're a place that is committed to having women and men being, having an equal place um, at the table so that voices can be heard and so that God's just community can flourish. Why? Why do we want to be a community of mishpat and the way that we treat each other? Because this is the good way. This is the way of tov. This is the way we can build a culture of God's beautiful goodness that will display God and his kindness to the world. So as we close and as we prepare to come to this table, I have not really talked much about the person of Jesus today, but yet he has been everywhere. He is everywhere because he is the ultimate revelation of God's passion for mishpat. God's, I mean, just, just think about this, y'all. Like God so identifies with the poor and the powerless of the earth that in his incarnation, he becomes poor and powerless. He's born in a feed trough. His parents are so poor that when they go on the eighth day for his circumcision, they offer up two pigeons, which was the offering only reserved for the poorest of the poor. He lives as a poor man with no place to lay his head. He dies as a poor man with nothing but his robe on his back. He is the subject of horrific violence and oppression. His trial was a miscarriage of justice. His execution is carried out under the shadow of political and religious oppression. He knew what it was like to stand up to power and be killed. So what is astonishing about the God that we worship and we approach at this table is that he is not just a God who calls for justice. He's a God who endured injustice on our behalf and that through his oppression, we are saved. And this is the ultimate motivating power for doing mishpat, not to be good people, not to you know, earn God's blessing, but we are a people of mishpat because God himself endured injustice for us. He experienced what we did not deserve, what he did not deserve, that we might be saved. So friends, if you grasp this by faith, you will become a person of mishpat. You'll want to be generous because you have been saved by the act of a radically generous God. You will want to side with the powerless because you know that you in your powerlessness was saved by Jesus Christ to set you free. You will want to live a sacrificial life because you know you were saved through the sacrifice of a generous God for you. Mishpat is born, not of guilt, but of gratitude, profound gratitude, living in response to the God who gave up everything for us. So let us approach this table with grateful hearts, receiving the love and the good news of a God who would do this for us 
called to live as his people in the world, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so deeply humbled as we come to this table that despite all of your power, you renounced all of that to come among us and embrace powerlessness and poverty, that we in our poverty might be set free. Empower us as we come to this table, fill our hearts with grateful praise that we might leave fed, ready to live in the world witnessing, bearing witness to your goodness to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.